This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and also available on iTunes. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City. It's the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, journalist Mike Magner discusses his military expose, A Trust Betrayed. Then PW Religion Reviews editor Marsha Z. Nelson will recap the Calvin College Festival of Faith and Writing. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. Rose Fiction. What do we have? We have a new number one by David Baldacci, that mm-hmm. reliable bestseller. Uh, this is The Target. It's his third book, third thriller featuring CIA hitman Will Roby. Uh, so in this one, the U.S. president authorizes an operation to assassinate a foreign leader, and mm-hmm. Roby is sent along with his fellow agent Jessica Reel, but they end up instead attempting a dangerous incursion into a North Korean labor camp in order to rescue a couple of prisoners. So Baldacci is is uh, very unsparing in depicting the brutal conditions there. And uh, this is definitely one that will have fans of international thrillers on the edges mm. of their seats. And at number three on our hardcover fiction list, we have a new book by Maeve Binchy, which is not a thing that we're ever going to be able to say again, unless mm-hmm. some posthumous manuscript is discovered. She's a, a beloved writer from Ireland uh, who died a couple years ago and uh, just an, an extraordinary force in, in the women's fiction market, as we would call it today, though back then there wasn't even such a designation for her books. Yeah. Uh, this is Chestnut Street. It's a collection of short stories all written uh, about an imaginary street in Dublin. They were written over a period of decades, and this collection was approved by her husband. Um, you can really see the progress of her career and of her writing talent. Uh, the earlier stories uh, are, are more developed than some of the later tales, which kind of got short shrift as she focused more on her novels. Uh, but overall, uh, the PW Review says that Binchy gives us one last extraordinary look at ordinary people as they struggle with family relationships, romance has gone awry, and the possibility for a better future. And while some entries come off more as character studies than actual stories, one finds plenty of insightful observations about human nature, all with Binchy's thoughtful and loving touch that will be sorely missed. Mm, I I grew up reading her books, and and it was they're they're really just not quite like anyone else. Um, She she was sort of Nora Roberts before Nora Roberts was Nora Roberts. So she's. I I think a lot of her fans are definitely going to be very eagerly picking this one up, even even for its flaws, even if it's not so polished. It's it's one last chance. Sure, yeah. Who published the book? Comes out from Knopf. Oh, great. And uh, it's a twenty-seven dollar hardcover, which hasn't stopped people from snapping it up. So that's at number three on our list. And at number six, uh, we have an inspirational title. We don't often make it onto the, the top ten of our bestseller list. Mm. Um, this one is Bridge to Haven by Francine Rivers. Um, it's a tale of romance, uh, which they, they call uh, both uh, unconventional and unconditional love. Uh, and a, it's also a tale of temptation mm. and grace um, between uh, a pastor and 
a, a star of the screen mm-hmm. who uh, maybe needs someone to recognize her as a person and not so much as a movie star. So that's Bridge to Haven. Uh, right. It's number six on our fiction list. Well, in, in speaking with uh, inspiration, let's continue that with nonfiction. And this one, number one, is kind of financial inspiration. Uh, smart money, smart kids, raising the next generation to win with money. This is uh, by radio host and financial expert uh, Dave Ramsey. He's the author of The Total Money Makeover. Mm -hmm. And this one he writes with his daughter, Rachel. This is a guide to raising financially savvy kids using uh, what he says, practical, tactical, spiritual, and strategic principles. So there's the the spiritual in there, the inspirational in there. And they talk about uh, you know, what he talks about, what it was like growing up for him, how he, uh, in his 20s, uh, bankrupted his family. And, uh, but for, uh, for Rachel, she was, she was in her, when she was 16, when she saved uh, $8,000, which her parents matched for her first car. So they talked about how to save little by little, mm-hmm. how to make cash for cars rather than on credit or through financing. Um, and, and we say that though, though uh, biblical references are interspersed, uh, parents of all faiths will benefit from this uh, sound guide. So that's number one. Number two from Robin Roberts, writing with Veronica Chambers. She's the Good Morning, uh, she's the host of Good Morning America, Everybody's Got Something, which recounts her recent struggle with illness and path to recovery. And her illness was MDS, which is disease sometimes referred to as pre-leukemia. In this, she, you know, she offers readers a deeply intimate and endearing glimpse into the human side of battling illness. I'm quoting PW's review. So that's at number two. Uh, number four, Elizabeth Warren uh, is coming out from Metropolitan Books. Uh, we gave it a starred review of Fighting Chance, and as we know, she's the uh, senator from Massachusetts. Uh, and she serves up here a frank and lively account of how she became the banking and finance industry's fiercest nemesis. The book is more memoir than manifesto, and, and she emerges as a uh, committed advocate with real-world sensibility who tasted tough economic times at an early age and did not forget the bitterness, as we say, closing our review. So, and that's at number four. Oh, so definitely a, a lot of inspiration of yes. various sorts exactly. all over the list, Exactly, uh, which will lead us into the third segment of today's show, where we talk with our religion reviews editor about an inspirational writing. Fantastic. So on we go. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Mike Magner will dive into a world of military whistleblowers and mysterious illness. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Mike Magner on the line. His new book is A Trust Betrayed, the untold story of Camp Lejeune and the poisoning of generations of Marines and their families. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Well, uh, before we talk about the book, tell us about the history of Camp Lejeune. Uh, Camp Lejeune was opened in 1941 at the beginning of World War II to train Marines uh, for the landings that they would be doing uh, in the Pacific, largely. And uh, it's it's a, a, a base that has nine miles of beaches along the North Carolina coast. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it grew from, from that initial training base to, to being the headquarters for the Marine Division for the eastern half of the country. And it is it is, it is a small-sized city there now. Um, it, it, they have uh, capacity for as many as 180,000 people on the base at this time. Your book is about um, toxic chemicals that contaminated the water there. How did that happen? 
Well, what happened is over time, uh, as the base grew uh, and and the the environmental standards were were pretty limited in the 40s and 50s and 60s because the environmental laws that we have uh, really didn't kick in until the 70s and 80s. Um, the, the Marines, just like all of the military around the country at all bases, were were basically just dumping everything on the ground. They were build, digging pits and putting in the the used oil um, or the battery acids that that they had. And in some cases, at some bases, is that like Camp Lejeune, they were burying chemical weapons there. Wow. Um, and there was a lot of different um, uh, contaminants. Uh, there, there was also a widespread use of, of a, a highly uh, strong uh, solvent called uh, TCE, uh, which is basically like lighter fluid. And th- they would use this stuff to hose down engines and uh, tanks and weapons after they were, they were used and, and take all the grease off. And uh, what they were doing at Camp Lejeune was doubly, doubly bad because it being on the on the shore, all the soils are very sandy, and so anything you put on the land goes right down into the groundwater below. And they were using the the most shallow aquifer for their drinking water at the base. So over time, um, there was uh, quite a buildup of uh, uh, toxic stew in in some of the drinking water systems. So obviously that caused some health problems for the Marines and their families. Yeah, yeah, and and the the sad thing is they did not realize it at the time. Um, some of the uh, Marines would would leave their families there and then go off and do tours of duty in in Vietnam, for instance, in the '60s. So their wives were left behind, and, and in some cases uh, were pregnant. Um, and drinking contaminated water, and the effects on uh, uh, fetus are, are, that's the worst time to be exposed to toxic chemicals is in the womb. And um, so they didn't really even understand it because you couldn't taste it or smell it in the water. And uh, what was happening is that uh, in, in a number of cases, babies were, were dying soon after they were born. Um, um, and and there, I open up the book with the story of a, a Marine uh, officer who, who actually was in Vietnam and his wife was, um, was pregnant at the base. And six weeks after their boy was born, he died of uh, heart defects. And they had no idea at the time uh, what had happened. And, and it wasn't really until about almost 30 years later for him uh, that the first studies came out that indicated um, that there was a connection between the drinking water and um, possible harm to babies that were born at Camp Lejeune. And uh, it sort of grew from there into uh, a movement by people that had children that were affected uh, to demand that the Marine Corps be more um, accountable and forthcoming about what had happened. And so this, this you said this baby who, uh, who had died, yes. this was 30 years ago. That was in 1967, um, but it was 30 years later in 1997 that the first studies came out indicating there was a link between the drinking water and, and harm to children. Uh, I wanted to ask you what other you know, side effects there were, what other, however, how else uh, this contamination yeah. manifests itself. But first, can you give us a sense of the size of, of Camp Lejeune? Uh, well, uh, as I said, it's like a uh, small-sized city. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a sprawling base, you know. It, it but like like I said, it goes nine miles up and down the coast, and a lot of it is undeveloped property where they use which which they use for training. Um, Marines out, uh, you know, actually driving tanks around. They have military exercises and a firing range, um, and, and so the so the the housing, the residential areas are kind of concentrated in um, 
certain parts of the base, and there are um, there are really large uh, housing units, um, you know, uh, apartments and 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 uh, housing for thousands of people in concentrated areas, and unfortunately, the the most populated area, Tarawa Terrace was the one where uh, most of these chemicals were showing up. And uh, right across the street from that housing complex, uh, there was a dry cleaner that was adding to the problem by dumping perchloroethylene or perk, uh, a dry cleaning solvent, uh, on its land, and it was seeping into the groundwater that was going right into that base water supply. So they were getting it from all sides. And you were saying that thousands of people. How many people live there uh, any given year or season or... Well, at, at at any one time, it's between a hundred thousand and and a hundred and eighty thousand. Um, wow. it, it it varies depending on what kind of deployments are going on. Um, Marines, as you know, shift uh, bases and assignments all the time. So there's a lot of a lot of movement in and out. Um, and so they really don't have a handle on how many people were exposed. It's been estimated that it could be as many as a million were uh, on the base from the time when the contamination began in the 50s uh, until they finally discovered the water supply was contaminated in 1985. So that's a, that was a long period of time where thousands and thousands of people were going in and out of that base. And But all it took was if, if, your, uh, if your spouse was pregnant there for, uh, for uh, nine months or, or even less and was drinking that water, then, then there were harm, was harm being done. So you said that the contamination was discovered in the 80s, uh, yeah. and, and the, yeah. you know, these links were gradually drawn uh, in the 90s. What was the resolution of this? What's the status of things there today? It's still being studied, believe it or not. Um, the, the Marine Corps has been um, pretty, pretty uh, adamant about um, that there isn't a, a link because they have so much liability. And they have uh, done everything they could to kind of delay studies. They've held up, withheld funding for studies at times. Um, and and when when the federal science science agency that was charged with doing these studies uh, wanted to go out and try to track down everybody who had lived at the base so that they could find out who had health problems, the Marine Corps didn't even turn over its uh, database of who had lived at the base because they argued there was privacy laws that prevented them from doing that. Ultimately, they ended up handing them over because they looked so bad and in, in not not wanting to to let people know what happened uh, and congress passed a law that said you have to go out and find these people and let them know that, that they may have been exposed and then ultimately all of that pressure led to congress passing a law in 2012 that says anybody who was at the base while the water was contaminated and comes down with any of 15 different diseases from liver cancer to other kinds of really serious problems they are eligible for health care whether they were in the in the in the service or not family members of marines who were affected are eligible through the va for health care uh, and that law is just now being implemented but um, there are there are a number of studies that are still going on because it became evident that there may have been a problem with male breast cancer from the base. Um, there were there have been more than 80 cases of men uh, coming down with breast cancer um, years after they were at Camp Lejeune, and there's a study of that going on right now to try to get a handle on on uh, how big that problem is. Wow! And uh, tell us, how did you come across this story? 
Well, I was working for uh, an environmental news service about 10 years ago, actually, where we'd, we would dig into stories and, and then turn them over to places like the New York Times and Washington Post. And if they were willing to do them, you know, we would just basically give them the information. We had some grants to do that. And we were looking at a, a story about contaminated military bases, which there are hundreds of them all around the country. And that led me to come across some of these some of these former Marines who had just discovered recently that their 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 families were affected and had you know in some cases um, some some of them had children who died, and um, the the movement then for for demanding accountability was just getting started. So I've been actually following the story for about ten years. Um, it was the passage of the law in 2012 that made me realize this this is starting to have a big impact on the military budget because you know all these people that could could now get health care. Uh, it, it's going to cost them quite a bit of money, and if people are successful in in litigation, which is now going on, um, the military's costs for the for all of this could be very, very high in the billions of dollars. So, what do you hope to accomplish by making the story more public, by bringing it to the attention of people who might not otherwise have heard it, by bringing this book out? Well, a, a couple of things. I, th- I think people need to be aware um, that contamination can have effects long after your exposure. Um, I, don't, I don't think a lot of people realize that. I think that the Marine Corps at the time was saying, well, what's a, what's, what harm is a little bit of toxic chemical going to do to our Marines who survived Vietnam and, and World War II, you know? Um, they never really understood what, what the long-term effects could be, and, and I think that people need to understand that. But I think more importantly, um, this is a case where the, the military has literally turned its back on people who served. Um, you know, for, for guys to have served in Vietnam and, and, and expecting that their at least their families are safe on a military base in the United States, uh, to come back and, and find out later, years later, that their families were poisoned by the Marine Corps at that time because of their uh, kind of irresponsible um, environmental management. Um, it, it's just an outrage, and, and, and what, what, the, what the Marine Corps has done is try to deny that they're, they're responsible and have at, at every, every turn put up roadblocks for people to get information. Um, there was just an argument held before the Supreme Court last week in which the government is siding with a toxic uh, chemical polluter in North Carolina, uh, which is trying to get out of uh, lawsuits that were filed by people exposed to TCE on the basis of a state law that says you can't file suit against a polluter more than 10 years after their last act of pollution. And the government's taken the side of that company in this case because they realized if that North Carolina takes precedence over the federal law, then they could be off the hook for any damage claims from Camp Lejeune damages. And uh, actually, Aaron Brockovich came into town here in Washington last week to, to protest the government's position in this case, saying it's turning its back on, on veterans by doing that. Now, your, your previous book was The Poisoned Legacy, The Human Cost of BP's Rise to Power. What are yeah. similarities that you can draw between these two events? You know, uh, one thing I was really struck by, in, in the case of BP with the oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico and, and earlier in a case where they... Um, they were cutting corners on uh, their refinery safety in Texas, and a refinery exploded. 
that killed 15 people uh, back in uh, 2005. In, in in both of those cases, in the Gulf uh, Gulf spill case uh, and the Texas refinery case, they were cutting corners to save money and to speed up the process of you know p- producing gasoline and in the in the Gulf to to get drilling done in, in the deep waters, and and so in the in in the case of Camp Lejeune. I think the government back, or, the, or excuse me, the military at the time, the Marine Corps, they had warning signs that there were problems with their water uh, for five or six years at least before they finally shut down the wells. And they they didn't act because they they it was so easy to just keep pumping the water that they needed there. And um, it could have cost them some millions of dollars perhaps to find an alternative water source. But they they decided not to do that, and now they're facing billions of dollars in liability. So, so whether it's the public uh, sector, the government, or or the private sector, I think there's a tendency to always try to to save money and in, in at the expense of possibly uh, public safety, and the and the the costs of doing that in the long term are are much higher, um, especially with all the damage that's done to people. Yeah, financial costs, and as you say in your other books, title human costs. Yeah, exactly. All these families that have been affected, it's still affecting people in the Gulf where the fishery isn't, hasn't completely come back, uh, and a lot of the fishing industry has been adversely affected down there. Now, BP will tell you differently that it's it's completely come back, but um, there are, are reports that it's not completely cleaned up yet. Wow. So did these books come out of reporting that you did for the National Journal? Uh, no, actually, because I, I was working earlier for a different news service, um, I, I I came across uh, the story about BP earlier uh, when I was working for them. It, they're both stories that I just kept following uh, over time, and and actually, in the case of the BP book, when the spill happened, uh, that that was when we realized that there's a broader book here. And you're a veteran journalist with nearly four decades of experience. Uh, so at what point as a journalist do you look at an article or a story that you're following and think, this could become a book? Um, it's hard to say. I think you have to judge it on a case-by-case basis. I think, you know, a one-time story that um, is resolved in a short time is not going to make a book because there's just not enough material there. But in, in both the case of the BP story and the case of the Camp Lejeune story, uh, they they were stories that continued over actually decades. Uh, in, in the case of BP, well, it was like a decade. But uh, they not only had the spill in the Gulf but and the refinery accident, but they had some uh, leaks up in Alaska that caused uh, some land problems. Um, and uh, the, the real basis for the book was a story about a refinery, uh, an abandoned refinery that they inherited in Kansas that was exposing uh, people to toxic groundwater. And there was a long legal battle there to clean that up. So in, in all these cases, I think it's got to, got to be a story that, that really continues over time and, and has lots of conflicts and and lots of different players involved in, in each case, I think, to sustain a book. We've been talking with Mike Magner. You can find his book, A Trust Betrayed, in stores right now. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Religion Reviews editor Marsha Z. Nelson takes us to a celebration of writing and faith, so stay tuned.
Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. And today, PW Religion Reviews editor Marcia Z. Nelson is on the line with us with a report from the Calvin College Festival of Faith and Writing. Hello, Marcia. Hi, Mark. Hi, Rose. Hi. So um, tell us a little bit about this festival, which happened in, uh, I guess, in early April. And, and where is uh, Calvin College? Tell us where that is. Well, Calvin College is in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which at the time that I was there earlier in April still had some vestigial snow because Grand Rapids had a record year for snowfall. But that being said, I guess I would say that the festival was, if anything, really, really, really hot. I mean, there were a whole lot of A-listers there this year. <laughs> I was uh, going over my notes and, and flipping through the, the program book as, uh, in, in thinking about, um, you know, who I might like to highlight. And I've got a long list for you. <laughs> oh, great. So who's yeah. on that list? Um, well, on Thursday night, I heard James McBride. Um, you may remember that he won the National Book Award for the Good Lord Bird. Mm-hmm. And he gave a really interesting plenary in which I guess I didn't realize, although I'm sure a lot of folks know, um, he, has a, he has a background as a jazz musician. And so he just, he risked. <laughs> I mean, mm. he just essentially sort of, you know, spoke without notes. Um, and it was just, it was fascinating. It was funny. At, at times, it was a little bit like, you know, some of, the, some of the stuff he knew, like, really well and was really insightful, and some of the stuff came across a little bit like, you know, what, what the guy at the bar might say to you about, about certain mm-hmm. subjects. But altogether, I mean, he just really um, held folks' attention. And tell um, us what he was talking about. Um, he was talking about... You know, he was talking about faith. He was talking about um, <laughs> about the the story that God had planted in his heart. Um, but it, let me assure you, it really wasn't very pious. It was much more much more jazzy and and surprising. Um, what else did he talk about? I said because he he went he spoke for a whole hour. He talked a little bit about the color of water, which was the. Um, previous memoir that that he's that he's done which is about his mom and so he he gave a lot of insight i think into and he told a lot of jokes too about um his audience was was um predominantly white in this in this part of uh, western michigan where there tend to be a lot of of um there was an earlier dutch settlement and so there are people with van and so forth in in their name Mm -hmm. um and so he was able in in part to kind of gently kid um make some sort of um elbow nudging references about about um cultural diversity um which and which his own background represents i mean he's um he has an african-american dad and a a white jewish mom (laughs) and she became a baptist i guess if i if i'm recalling that right um, it was, it was, um, it was really um, entertaining. Yeah, it sounds like quite a character, and it sounds like <laughs> quite quite a talk. Uh, yeah, who yeah. else was there? Um, Anne Lamott um, was the plenary speaker on Friday night, and she really packed the house. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, too, um, she had a prepared speech, but she just kind of jumped script because she had spent um, some time earlier 
earlier that week in in a funeral home after one of her friends died, and so she she chose to um, you know riff in her own Lamadi way um, from the heart about. And it so happened that it was the day after her 60th birthday. Mm. So the whole auditorium sang her happy birthday. Oh, that sounds very so, sweet. This sounds like, yeah. like a sort of family gathering. Um, how, um, how many people were you there? Know, it, um, one does tend to run into a lot of people one knows. I mean, it's, it's, um, the, 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 the bill is really a, a, a national gathering of writers, but... I think someone, unfortunately, it, it, it's it's um, um, underknown. It's it it really seems that the people who attend um, are more regional than national. And I, I really think it's it's a really fine event. It's been in place since 1990, and it goes on every two years. Um, it it deserves to be better known than it is. So glad you asked me to talk about it. <laughs> well, well, tell us about the conceit of the, the, the Faith and Writing Festival. It's, it, it's not, so it sounds like it's not religious necessarily, but more faith of whatever, you know, who, who's ever choosing. So tell us about the conceit. What brings everyone um, together? Well, maybe it would be easier if I sort of perhaps read some of the, the, the names of, of people who were there to, to say that it's, it's conce- faith, first of all, is conceived very broadly, and it's certainly not just um, limited to a certain kind of Christian. One of the uh, speakers who was there was G. Willow Wilson, um, and as a matter of fact, we sat down, not, not me, but, a, but another um, a writer sat down with her and um, did a Q&A with her. Um, and G. Willow Wilson did The Butterfly Mosque, mm-hmm. uh, that was the memoir of her conversion to Islam. She's currently writing the monthly comic book series, Ms. Marvel, mm-hmm. for Marvel Comics, <laughs> which um, which is, I believe, the first female Muslim superhero in Marvel's lineup ever. That's that that's that's exactly right, Rose. Mm-hmm. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, no, I've I've I mean, been I've been hearing a lot about that from my friends in the in the comic book field. Everyone's very excited about it. Um, and in that same vein or in the same genre, uh, Jean Luen Yang was also there. Um, and he gave a talk at the beginning, um, which I did not catch, and he wasn't there very long, um, and he was too busy to sit down for a Q&A with us. Um, but Jean Luen Yang is an example. What, what the organizers tried to do this year was to not just sort of, of draw from a variety of genres and, and across faiths. They also had a number of... of screenwriters um, and so forth there because they really uh, one of the one of the folks who's uh, you're so busy you invariably miss more presentations than you catch but they had Luke Schellhoff there and I had to stop and think well who's he uh, well he's the producer of uh, the television series Law and Order um, so it was a really um, just a, a vastly mixed and, and interesting bag, something for everyone. Children's lit, um, lots of poetry, um, novels, uh, screenwriting. What else can I tell you? Um, whatever you want to tell us. Uh, tell us a little <laughs> bit about how big the gathering is and, and what the setting is like aside from the snow. Um, well, it's, 
it's the kind of a, a, a setting where you should bring good shoes um, because there are 114, there were 114 speakers and there's about 2,000 people. Hmm. So there's usually about five or six uh, programs going on in any one hour and a half slot, and they're spread all over the campus, um, which is, is normally a beautiful and, and in spring bloom. But as I said, this year was sort of had some dirty snow left over in the parking lot. <laughs> so um, there's invariably two things going on that, that you want to go to, so you have to miss one. <laughs> uh, and um, it's it runs from a Thursday through a Saturday. So it's really three full days of programming. The evenings are the big plenaries um, to which the, the public um, is, the general public, as well as the folks that um, are attending the festival um, are invited. It is underwritten by a number of uh, local publishers, um, which is part of the way in which they can, you know, uh, 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 presumably mm-hmm. afford such a, a star-studded bill. Do you recall but, which let, publishers? Uh, yeah, sure, I can tell you that. It's um, Zondervan, okay. um, William B. Erdman, mm-hmm. Erdman's, and Baker Publishing. They're mm-hmm. all in Grand Rapids. Um, Lion Publishing was also there, and I spoke with the publisher there. They were there to uh, tout their new fiction line. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was their their interest and their intersection, and Lion is distributed here in this country by Kriegel, um, which is also based in Grand Rapids. So, um, did you get a sense of of any big trends, any big news um, coming out of the conference that might shape the kinds of books that you see in your inspirational section over the next couple of years? That's uh, that's a really good question, Rose. Um, I think um, I saw a real awareness of the world stage. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was thinking of, of world affairs specifically. Um, a person I very much regret I missed was Uem Akpan. Do you know him? He's, he, uh, he wrote Say You're One of Them, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which was critically acclaimed a couple of years ago. He is a Nigerian Jesuit <laughs> mm. um, who's currently working at New- the New York Public Library, actually, um, as a fellow at the Coleman Center for Scholars and Writers. I think that there is an aware, a growing awareness, and indeed it was, I mean, James McBride was one of the ones who humorously pointed out of the, the, the whole um, spectrum of world cultures and, and diversity of concerns that I saw reflected certainly in the programming um, and in the people who were invited. Um, so that is what I would, you know, one of the things I would look to is, is uh, kind of world consciousness, global mm-hmm. consciousness is really what I want to say. And I'm sorry, how many attendees did you say, roughly? Uh, about 2,000. About 2,000, and mostly from uh, regional, from, from right around that area. Um, I think so, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And who uh, it, who know, were attending? Were they uh, 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 hopeful writers or, or, or established writers or, or uh, just fans and book buyers? Or well, I think perhaps all of the above. Mm-hmm. I, I think that there are there are certainly some hopefuls, and then there are people who may have published one or two books with um, 
people are going there to to uh, talk with fellow writers. I mean, that's why you get a sense of, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, wh- when you see people, you, know, you, you greet people, you know, in, in the hallways and so forth. So I would say there are writers with smaller presses, um, uh, aspiring writers. And then, of course, there's an exhibit hall um, because people that are that committed to books read them and buy them. Um, and so that's why publishers are interested. They they basically get to sell their wares and, and promote their authors. Well, thank you, Marcia. That definitely sounds like something people should check out in 2016 when it comes around again. Right. Thank you. Thanks for asking. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. You can find this in every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and on iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. Check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 